Yes. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> you never know what you're going to end up with if I don't have a little tethering action going on here. So this, believe me, this is for your benefit. Um, yeah, and so, so last we looked at Psalm 27 last week, and if you were here, you remember we were really talking about the presence of God. I mean, they, uh, the sons of Korah uh, had, had written the week before about our desire to be close to God, but some of the things get in the way. That was in Psalm 42. And then Psalm 27, David has this expressed desire to be in God's presence all the days of his life. So we said, what does it look like to live life quorum Deo, before the face of God? And what he was really seeking in that psalm is God's presence. My heart says of you, seek his face, your presence, O Lord, I will seek. And we talked about what it means to wait on the Lord. And part of waiting on the Lord, according to that psalm, is actually seeking God, going after him. That's what it means to wait for God. And one of the reasons I love the psalms is just their raw honesty. I mean, this kind of battle we have inside ourselves when we say, I know I should desire God, but then I find that I'm not so much or that I'm seeking to avoid his presence rather than seeking to be near to him as well. And David, who writes this particular psalm, is very honest about that as well. And I was sharing just the last couple weeks about how in my own life, especially in this past year, uh, I have not been cultivating my own intimacy with Christ. I just haven't had much desire, and I've been going through the motions. And that's part of sometimes what the Christian life is like. If you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, there are seasons when you're just you're just kind of putting one foot in front of the other, and that's sort of what it's like. And you're still trying to put yourself in a position where there's some flame that's ignited, and it's just not coming. And that's kind of describes where I've been, in, at least in some part, because oftentimes you start seeking what God can give instead of God himself. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, but... I've, I've been reading a book. Jared Meidel gave this to me. He's been my main resource for books recently. Uh, that I began reading slowly over the summer. And interestingly enough, I read this particular chapter after last week's message. And it's all about the presence of God. And of course, I'm thinking, why didn't I read this before? This would have been perfect. But I think it's a great bridge to this psalm as well. Uh, this, this book uh, is called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. In this section, it's really written through the eyes of kind of Moses as a, as a leader. talks about a leader's greatest need. Um, it's the moment when whatever the promised land is for us. So this author's talking about promised land, something that you desire, you're headed towards, whatever that might be. And it's written from the perspective of ministry here. A church of a certain size, a new ministry, a new building, writing a book, being sought out as an expert. It can be anything for you, you know, good kids, great grades, a certain amount of income. Whatever the promised land is, you're looking for that promised land, right? You're headed there. That's what you're spending all of your time doing, whatever that may be pales in significance with, when compared with our desire for God. It's that moment when whatever it is pales in significance when compared with our desire to God. At this point, we might realize that we are missing the presence of God for ourselves personally. We might look around at what we've done or built and wonder whether we have gotten where we are merely through our own efforts 
and whether we have somehow gotten out ahead of the very presence that called us to this journey in the first place. Maybe we see that our own relationship with God has been overtaken with ministry concerns or whatever concerns of life, and we grieve the loss of a sense of God's presence deep within. Leadership has taken a toll. A great emptiness has opened up. We realize, as Moses did, there is no promised land we could ever envision that matters nearly as much as the presence of God in our life right here and right now. There is nothing out there that matters as much as God's presence in my life right here and right now. Future possibilities are not enough because we're not even sure we'll be around to see them. It's no longer enough to know that others are experiencing the goodness of God. Even if it's through us, there has to be some goodness in it for us, something to sustain our own fragile soul. And so I'm pretty honest. You know, I feel like that's sort of where I've been. Even when you're trying to seek the very presence of God, it's easy to get off just a little bit. I'll read one other quote from this. It's actually from a Martin Luther King Jr. sermon called Our God is Able. He's talking about Exodus 33 and this encounter that Moses had with God and basically God's telling him to do something and Moses says, if your presence isn't with me, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I've got to have the presence of God. Here's what Martin Luther King said. After the Montgomery bus protests had been undertaken, we began to receive threatening phone calls and letters. At first, I took them in my stride, but as the weeks passed, I realized that many of the threats were in earnest. I felt myself growing in fear. After a particularly strenuous day, I settled in bed at a late hour when the telephone rang, an angry voice said, Listen, N-word, we've taken all we want from you. Before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. I could not sleep. It seemed that all my fears had come down on me at once. I was ready to give up. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had almost gone, I determined to take my problem to God. I bowed and prayed to the Lord. I'm here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I'm afraid. Martin Luther King Jr. was afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I'm at the end of my powers. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never before experienced him. It seemed as though I heard an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth. God will be at your side. Almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. The outer situation remained the same, but God had given me an inner calm. Three nights later, our house was bombed. And strangely enough, I accepted the word of the bombing, calm, the bombing calmly. My experience with God had given me new strength and trust. I knew now that God is able to give us the interior resources to face all the storms of life. And I don't know about you, but, you know, if we don't have the presence of God in our lives, why are we here? What, what are we doing? Especially church. You're just dressing up and you all look pretty. But... If God's presence isn't among us, if he's not at work in our lives, what's the point, really? And David wrestled with that. He was a man after God's own heart who had experienced a lot of times the presence of God. In fact, he spent a lot of his life building the temple. You know, we're looking at Moses. You got the Shekinah glory coming down to kind of a makeshift moving place. And David says, I want a permanent place for the presence of God. Builds a temple. 
and you go into that presence and, and there's some encountering with God that's, that's, that's more palpable than you might experience otherwise. And David was in charge of all that. And yet David, who knew the very presence of God, built a place where God's presence could rest. Oftentimes, as a complex person, did the very things that separated him from God's presence. And in this psalm, we see that there's a distance between him and God that he is responsible for. And you probably know David's story. I mean, he committed adultery. He was complicit in murder. And when you do that kind of thing, you distance yourself from the presence of God. Because God can't have that. And David knows both things here. He's so complex, but he's so human. And it's so refreshing. He knows a desire to be in God's presence, but something is getting in the way. And here in this psalm, he realizes he's not really willing to do business with God and to confess and be honest. He's hiding. And because he's hiding from God, he will not know the experience of the blessed life. And this is how he begins here. He begins, really, in this passage with the blessing of experiencing forgiveness. He's tasted and seen before, not just the sweetness of life, but the sweetness of forgiveness. So he expresses what that looks like. And he says this, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. This word blessed, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, is something deeper than happiness, but it certainly involves that kind of sense of things are right. He knows what it's like to be right. It's almost another word pretty closely related to shalom, which is a very important word in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. It says everything is right, not just peace like there's no war today outside in Mason. There's, you, know, you don't have to worry that much about going home. That's a kind of peace, but the peace of the Bible that we're talking about is holistic peace. Peace with God, peace with each other, peace inside yourself. That's the kind of peace that we're envisioning. That's the kingdom of God is breaking in to bring that kind of peace as a foretaste of what Christ himself will bring. That's what we're pursuing. And when you are forgiven, when you taste forgiveness, it's like a breaking in of that kingdom God of God, it's like the blessing is there. The, the goodness that comes in, it's something deeper than happiness. It's a restored relationship, a wholeness, a deep satisfaction, despite circumstances, just like Martin Luther King was saying, all this stuff's going on. There's a peace inside in the presence of God. It's really knowing the presence of God in all things. And in this psalm, where does that blessing come? That blessing comes from, says David, it comes from God dealing with our sins, knowing that God has done something. And he expresses it in several ways. He says, first of all, the blessing comes from knowing that your transgressions are forgiven. And that sense of forgiven transgressions literally means being carried away. It's like a burden taken off your shoulders, no longer weighing you down. Now, as you know, we have an 18-year-old heading off to college. Our youngest is 12. But at one point, when they were four kids in six years, and we go, say, on a hike, and kids wanted to be put on my shoulders, that's great for a couple of steps. But they start getting heavy after a little while. And I, I can remember one time in particular, after going on a hike, the, the, the joy of getting that kid off my shoulders <laughs> and just the weight kind of being lifted off. Oh, 
You know, free and light again. That's what it's like here. When, that's what it's like to know your transgressions are forgiven. The weight has been lifted off. It's more than that, though. Blessed is he whose sins are covered. And this has the sense of being covered up. God doesn't see it anymore. It's almost like in the first house that we bought, the walls were just filthy, disgusting. And so we got to go in there and kind of scrub and paint over it. And it was a fresh coat of paint. And we could say, remember all the stuff that was under there? Yeah, but you can't see it anymore. Anybody who came in, all they saw was a fresh coat of paint. That's what it is like for the person who's been forgiven. It's a fresh coat. I can't see that anymore. It's been covered up. And he goes on to even talk more about the blessings beyond just those two things. He says, blessed is he whose sin the Lord does not count against him. There's no record kept of the sin anymore. There's no ledger where it's been written down that it was thrown into the fire. And Micah talks about, not Micah Chapman, but uh, Micah, or my son Micah. There's a lot of Micahs in this place. Oh yeah, you're Micah also. The prophet Micah in the Old Testament. The, you know, it's, you're see, it's thrown in the sea of forgetfulness. It's no more. It's just doesn't exist. If you're somebody who has a record, whether it's a driving record or something, and a judge says we're expunging that, it is no more. So that the next time maybe you get pulled over by a policeman, they look, you've got a clean record. That's what you're talking about. And if you know people who are felons, how hard it is to, when you get out back into the world to get a job, because they look at your record and they say, that's a felon, I'm not hiring him. This is your record before God, one sin. You're a felon. You're, it, it counts against you unless somebody deals with it. And when you know that it's been expunged and you have access to everything, can you imagine the sense of freedom? That's the blessing that David is saying you get when you know you've been forgiven. That's the blessing of experiencing forgiveness. And we sang about this at the, even at the very beginning of our service. Come ye sinners. That seems like such a depressing song. Come on, sinners! But it's a good message. Come ye weary. You're heavy laden. You're bruised and you're broken by the fall. You've got distance with God. If you tarry till you're better, that is if you wait until everything gets in order, guess what? You'll never come at all. You're never going to come if you wait until you get everything lined up. Not the righteous but sinners Jesus came to call. So don't let your conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. Don't dream you're one day going to wake up and just be perfect. All the fitness that he requires is what? It's to feel your need of him. And this is where David is going. He's saying, these are the blessings, but guess what? I'm not experiencing them right now. I'm not experiencing the presence of God, the lightness of being right with him and with others. And the reason is because He's got unconfessed sin. He's been walking and doing things that he wants to hide up in the dark. He's not willing to come out into the light. And he's not experiencing the presence of God. Do you know what that's like? And see, this is why we're saying confession is good for the soul. Because he wants you to know, don't stay there. Be honest. I've experienced it. 
He's, he's penned down that road. And if for those who will be wise and listen, he says, experiencing the blessing of forgiveness is something you can have, but there's a cost associated with refusing to confess. And that's what he talks about next. The prerequisite is not perfection. It's honesty and brokenness. That's what he's going to say. But if you are refusing to confess sin, you will not experience the blessings of forgiveness. You just won't. There's a cost, then, he says, of refusing to confess in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Refusing to be honest with God and to let God deal with sin has actually affected him physically. His bones are wasting away. And mentally, he's groaning all day long. He, he's got anguish inside of his soul. He's not at peace. He's disturbed. He knows something is wrong, and he's unwilling to deal with it. What's he, well, he is. What's he doing? He's hiding. And some of our greatest creativity, have you noticed, comes with hiding sin. I mean, if you know you've sinned, we are, if you doubt the human creativity, just think about it. We are so good at covering up our sin, trying to cover our tracks. I remember doing a deep clean one time of, what, of our, our kid's bedroom, you know, and there were like all these wrappers of candy. Like, where did these things come from? Like mounds. Looked like Mount Everest. And they weren't allowed to have that candy in there. But somehow there it is. Yeah, this is a real story. We learned. We learned later, you know, when kids get a little bit older and there's no more consequences for that particular sin. So what, what was, oh yeah, when you weren't looking, we, our cousins, and here's what happened, and we're like, ah, interesting. How many of those things do we have in our own lives as well? If our parents only knew, well, why didn't you tell them? <laughs> you know, if you're having to cover something up, it's probably wrong. It, it, we, we know some of why we do that, because we don't want to face the consequences. The consequences matter more to us than the restored relationship that comes from being honest. And let's face it, we're like that with God, too. I mean, I'm, I'm no different. I was a kid. I, such a clear memory of going over to Smith's Food King or growing up in Utah with my dad. I was maybe eight years old or so, and he let me hold the car keys. It made me feel really adult and grown up. And we were going through line, and I, I does anybody remember bubble yum? Do they still make bubble yum? Yeah, I wanted bubble yum. But I knew my parents, my dad probably wouldn't buy it for me, so that was pretty ingenious. I'd, I got some bubble yum, and I just put all five pieces in my mouth at one time. Get rid of the evidence, right? Um, and that was fine until my father asked me in the parking lot for, for the keys, and I answered with purple dripping stuff coming out of my mouth. I couldn't hide it any longer, and I was really in trouble. <laughs> As we went back and dealt with things, it was very memorable to me. It wasn't a very good way to hide it, but, you know, this, why, are we do, why do we do that? You know, we blame others. It's their fault, not mine. We excuse or justify our behavior. You know, there's a reason why I'm doing it that makes it right. We try to cover up on our own. Why? And maybe we're ashamed of what we've done and we don't want others to know about it. Maybe there's pride involved because it shows that you're weak and you're not perfect. Maybe there's fear. 
you know, fear of consequences from being honest. Maybe the fear of not being forgiven, if I'm honest. Forgiven by others who I've hurt. Maybe forgiven by God. Maybe he's tired of me falling the same way again and again. And he's just fed up. There's no more forgiveness. That well is run dry. Ironically, we can't know forgiveness unless we're willing to go to the very one who can truly offer it. The very person who ultimately we're hiding from and the only person who actually knows everything that we've done. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.13 that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. If the Bible is true, and we believe it is, God knows everything. That's what the author is saying. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him. Guess what? To whom we must give account. God knows everything. So you're hiding from God? It's a fool's errand. You can't do it. He knows everything. And we like to pretend he doesn't. Smoke and mirrors. And we can also, in the very physical realm, deceive others. But you can't deceive God. He knows everything. And David knows the weight of that. I mean, he's saying that here. He's experiencing the weight of hiding from a God from whom nothing can be hidden. Covering up his sin, which is ultimately against that very God. Psalm 51.4. We read it earlier. Against you and you only I have sinned. Psalm said when he's confessing adultery. Who did he sin against? Obviously against the woman that he took and that woman's wife. And yet he's saying ultimately it's a sin against God himself. He's not right with God. Instead of feeling God's friendship, he's sensing God's condemnation. I mean, he says that. He says that in verse 4. Day and night, your, your, heavy was, your hand was heavy upon me. God's hand is heavy on me. It's not for me. It feels like in friendship, but I feel the guilt and the heaviness of hiding my sin from him. And it feels like we're not on the same team any longer. It's not because God stepped away from him. It's because he's not being honest with God. And his soul is in jeopardy because of it. There's no joy. There's no proper perspective on life. There's no confidence. Just hiding and pretending and heaviness and distance and guilt. And he feels the weight of the offense, the anguish of having done wrong. But he's unwilling to confess it. Unconfessed sin will leak out over time like acid. It'll eat away at your bones. And, and here's the thing. If, if, if it does initially, and you don't deal with God about it, eventually what happens, Peter says, is your conscience gets, gets seared, and you just become apathetic, and it's no longer sin to you. You've got to deal with it some way. Maybe you can just cover it up and pretend it doesn't matter anymore. And I'm not even going to deal with that, the weight of that guilt. And that is one way to deal with it. However, if the Bible is accurate, there's a time when you will be called to account for that sin. So put it aside now, but there's a time coming when it'll be exposed. And so you can see why David says, how awesome is it to know my sin cannot be exposed because it's been dealt with, cast away, expunged, covered up, and I'm forgiven. So you know the story, right? Who in the world takes care of that? 
Who can bear the weight of that? Can you do enough good to make that right? No. And God knows this, so he sends somebody who can. Somebody who takes on all of your sin and covers it up. An advocate. One who rises to your defense. The only truly righteous one. Well, it's Jesus, of course. That seems to be where all messages go. Why not? The Bible is pointing toward him. We understand desperately our need, and our unconfessed sin is beckoning us to come and to be honest with God. And if we are, we find that he doesn't reject us, but he receives us. He gives us the one whom he rejected, his very son, and says, look at him. I'm not rejecting you anymore. Your unconfessed sin, now that it's out in the open, gives me an opportunity to express and remind you of something that I did once for all. And this is about relationship. If you've trusted Christ and you recognize your distance from God and say, I need Jesus, there's a positional righteousness you have before God. And you're in relationship with God. You're walking with him. But we just, we know what that's like. You say, I do. You're married. Does that mean that you're close to your spouse all the time? Or is it possible that sin creates distance in that relationship? And so what we're talking about is a relational righteousness here, a relational standing with God. And you know what it's like if you're walking with God. I'm distant from him. He hasn't moved. He's for you. Always look at Jesus. So how do we move forward? Confession. Being honest. Being real. Dealing with things as they are, not just as you want them to be. And this is why the title of the message is Confession is Good for the Soul. And really, David and the rest, and we'll cover this more briefly, but he talks about the benefits of confessing. There's a cost to not confessing sin, so there's a good part of confessing sin. Why is confession good for the soul? He says, I felt all this heaviness, but then I did something. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity because it wasn't working. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David was tired of feeling the weight, covering things up. He says, I'm going to be honest with God. And that can be a scary moment. Because <laughs> you know what it's like if you confess your sin to somebody you've, you've, you've wounded or hurt. You don't know how they're going to respond. There's no guarantees. If I confess my sin, how, well, how's God going to respond? And it's almost like even grammatically you're hovering there. What does he do? You forgave the guilt of my sin. That's the good news. Will God forgive? Will he still receive me? Will he come down with the hammer? He'll forgive. And the Bible talks about this elsewhere. If we claim to be without sin... If you think you're perfect, sorry, you're deceiving yourself. And the truth isn't in you. So we know we're wrestling with this, so what do we do? And John there, the beloved disciple of Jesus himself, says, well, this is what you do. You confess your sins. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession unlocks the experience of forgiveness. It's like a key unlocking the door to restored fellowship with God. To the blessings of forgiveness. But there was a price paid for the fashioning of that key. How do we even have access? 
Well, it was in the person of Christ. And John, just a few verses after that, says, If anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The price was paid, but Jesus paid it. Yeah, you know, in a little while, just a few moments, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. We, we proclaim the Lord's death. There was a price that was paid so that we can have fellowship with God. It's a table of confession to being honest with God and to restoring fellowship. So David's saying, look, confession is good. And confession is good because it allows us to be honest. And it's the pathway to experiencing forgiveness, to restored fellowship with God. I think most of us, even if you're not a follower of Christ, we want that. You want to, to experience the cleansing nature of forgiveness. I've made reference before. There was a book written called Blue Light Jazz, and Donald Miller registers at one of the most liberal college campuses in the United States of America and Portland, Oregon, and they have this big festival one weekend where it's basically a drug fest. All drugs are legal. You can just do drugs on that campus. And they've got a lot of medical people there to attend to all the mess that happens as a result. But this is the vision of freedom there on that campus. And so this guy, as a believer, says, you know what? Let's make a confession booth. Have you heard this before as he writes about it? They have a big confession booth sign up there on the campus. And, uh, and they start receiving, you know, college kids who are coming in. And the, the college kids, they don't know how it's going to be received. But they come in and they start confessing their sins. It's like a line, basically. People come, because they want to have some sense of forgiveness. But the design of this confession booth was a little bit different. Before they can go too far, Donald Milner's friends say, stop, stop, stop. We don't want you to confess your sins to us. We want to confess our sins to you. We want to say we're sorry for the church that has condemned you before receiving you like we would like to. We want to say sorry for, and they start confessing the sins to the students. And of course, they don't know what to do. But then there's all this mutual confession. See, it's good for the soul. Even people who are saying, I'm just here to use a ton of drugs and everybody's giving me the big thumbs up for it, know that they need to confess something. Why is that? Because we've been designed that way. Yes, we struggle with sin, but we're designed to tell it and to receive forgiveness. And there's only one who can offer it. That's why it's good for the soul. And there's power in confession. You know that if you've done it before. It's scary. But it's, isn't it great not to have to hide anything anymore? You know, James, at the very end of James, we went through James, and this was the one passage we didn't cover because we were spilling over to something else. At the very end of James chapter 5, he says, Confess your sins to each other. Why? So that you may be healed. There's actually healing power in confession according to the Bible. It's good for the soul. It doesn't feel like it on the front end. And you might fear the consequences, but wow, when that weight has been lifted. And some of you are living with unconfessed sin from years ago. And here's the thing. Sin's slippery and tricky. You're looking at other people, and they've sinned worse than me. And once you start walking with God and he starts shining his light in, in your heart, you'll see that tiny little sin that you thought wasn't that big of a deal all of a sudden is just weighing you down. <laughs> That's the way it's like walking with God. It seems, it seems like, why would I want to do that? 
Because there's forgiveness, and it's, ble- it's a blessing. I remember those old Visa commercials, like you know, priceless commercials? A clear conscience, priceless. And those of you who have experienced that before know I'm telling the truth. The priceless nature of a clear conscience. How does that happen, confession? Verbalizing, it's the pathway to healing. Telling someone else indicates a conscious choice to be broken and to be vulnerable. And he goes on to say more. He's going, he goes on to say that confession's good because it's basically the pathway to experience forgiveness, but you can also know that you're right with God. You have restored fellowship with God. That's part of why we confess. I know something's wrong between me and God or even me and others. And he goes on to say, therefore, let everyone who's godly pray to you while you may be found. Confess today, because time might run out. Do it. Make it right now. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's like living life in the dash. That image comes to me a lot. A friend who you know, wrote a little pamphlet about living life in the dash. When you're born and when you die, you don't know when that death date is. Confess now. Well, you can experience the blessings of forgiveness. And more than that, it's good because you have the assurance of God's protection and deliverance. At least David does. He says, you're my hiding place. You'll protect me from trouble. Surround me with songs of deliverance. God is a place of refuge for those who know his forgiveness. That's just not the case for those who don't. You don't know that God is singing songs over you because you're living with unconfessed sin. You wonder. That's part of the sting of unconfessed sin is wondering. Am I still in favor? So go to him. Be honest with him. And here's the assurance that both our own offense to others has been dealt with. You know, it's not just, it works all kinds of ways. What about people who, who, who deserve to be punished by God? He says, I'll deal with them. It's mine to avenge. I'll repay. Yeah, I'm singing songs of deliverance over you. That's the blessing of forgiveness. And I know some people struggle very sensitive, like, do I have to, I mean, uh-oh, uh-oh, if I get in an accident on the way home and I haven't asked God's forgiveness, am I going to end up in the wrong place? Right? And that's why you need to remember positional righteousness. If you said yes to Jesus, he took care of it once for all. I'm talking about your relationship, your walk with God, and the distance gap that sometimes exists. You're not going to go to heaven just because you had a great quiet time this morning, and yet tomorrow you're not because you had a lousy one and none. It's your faith in Christ. It's Christ alone. Solus Christus. Sola fide. By faith alone. By grace alone. It's not because of what you do. And we need to pound that into our minds again and again. But the reality is, you know the distance I'm talking about when you're living with unconfessed sin, don't you? You're not designed to be that way. There's a reason why you're feeling that way. So be honest with God. Confession's good for the soul, but final warning. Beware the stubbornness of your own heart. In verse 9, do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. How frustrating is it to have a dog that won't come to you? Why don't you just come when I say come? A horse, a mule, whatever, you got to pull. and di- He's saying this could be you. So when you hear the message confess, don't be like a mule, don't be a donkey this morning. The right response is to be honest with God. If you're not, in your pride, you're refusing.
to come to God and experience the blessings of forgiveness. Don't be stubborn about confessing. Don't be stubborn about believing that God is worthy of your trust. Don't be stubborn about receiving forgiveness. See, that's part of the stubbornness too. I'll confess sin, but I'm not going to receive God's forgiveness. Don't be a mule. You think your sin is so much greater than everybody else's? Sorry. You're not so special after all. God can deal with it. Don't be stubborn about extending forgiveness to others either. Don't be like a horse or a donkey. It won't do it. And you're living with, with that, that bitterness. It's like drinking poison. And pride gets in the way, I know. But pride and confession are in opposition to each other. Just can't, don't have both of them together. When you confess and say, I am wrong, your pride will be crushed. If you want to continue to dwell in your pride, you will not confess. Or you'll confess half-heartedly. You won't know the blessings of forgiveness. There is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and leaves no regret. So confession requires humility. And you realize we can't get here on our own. We can't cover our sins. We try, but we fail. We can't manufacture goodwill toward offenders. Have you ever tried doing that? <laughs> I know I should forgive this person, but I hate their guts. <laughs> and you just can't, I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, we, we just, you can't get there. That's because we need Jesus. We need the Spirit. We can't do it. On our own. We don't have the, the capacity or the willpower. We need the one who died once for all. We need the one who convicts and the one who comforts. We need Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need the one who calls us sons and daughters. Even when we fail, you're still my son. You're still my daughter. Come close to me. We need the one who is the very presence of God. Jesus said, here I am in the flesh. We have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. We need Jesus. And I hope today, at the very least, you'll pray this prayer, which I have challenged you to pray before. It's the scariest prayer. Maybe some of you already know it, but it is the pathway, I think, to forgiveness and to experiencing God's presence, at least one of them. David himself, search me, O God, know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You pray that every day for the next week in the morning, and come and tell me what happens by the end of the week. If you want to experience the presence of God, I think it begins at least here, coming honestly before God and say, search me and try me and test me and show me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. If you say, I don't have any unconfessed sin, pray this prayer. <laughs> I dare you. <laughs> I challenge you. I encourage you because it's the pathway, really, to the deeper restored fellowship in the presence of God. Well, it's two minutes to 12, but who's counting? And I wanted to make sure that we experience the tangible presence of God given to us in his body and his blood, symbolically here, the bread and the juice. So we're going to distribute this. If you've said yes to Jesus, this is a moment to confess sin as well and to know that you're forgiven. And your forgiveness, ultimately, foundation of it is what Christ has done. But you can't know that unless you've experienced Confess sin. In fact, there's a warning in 1 Corinthians 11. If you take this unworthy, in an unworthy manner, and I would, I would take that to mean not 
only that you really believe in Jesus, but he talks about unconfessed sin there too. Be honest with God. Confess your sin. This isn't for perfect people. It's for people who are willing to be broken and recognize that the solution is in Jesus. If that's you, then take the, 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 the bread and the, and the juice. We do this as one. We distribute everything all together to signify our unity. If that's not you, then let it pass by and deal with God. Be honest with him. There's some great prayers in the bulletin about this too. And we'll get you ready.